1: And welcome to the New Books Network, I'm Pierre Danassa. Who do you turn to at the brink of the apocalypse? Who has the answers when the very foundations of contemporary Western societies, from their investment in capitalism to the boundless desire for growth, threaten the survival of civilization? What might help us to mitigate the financial, commercial, political, social, and cultural collapse for which we may be heading? These are alarmist and alarming questions. But what do we think that the end is nigh? Many of us would agree that things aren't exactly going very well out there. Narratives of decline are embraced by progressives and conservatives alike. Even the most politically disaffected communities could hardly deny that the striking levels of wealth inequality that characterize developed economies aren't putting a strain on social cohesion. If we believe the news, cultures have never been more polarized than today. Even the most progressive of social changes are evidence of the impending end to some. And at the extreme, groups like Extinction Rebellion promote the idea that the climate emergency threatens all life. The fear of extinction and collapse now drive geopolitics and social attitudes alike. Museums and Societal Collapse, a new book by Robert James proposes an unlikely hero to counter this narrative. It is Robert's hope that the museum could become, in his word, a lifeboat. Museum, he argues, are the public shopfronts which can foster civic dialogue and promote a vision of society that may survive the Great Flood. This could be music to the ears of these institutions, many of which are grappling with a crisis of confidence. Many, however, already believe that they have the social and political mandate to solve climate change and to resolve political tensions. The climate activist narrative which Robert proposes is the future of museum I think is already the creed of many cultural institutions today. Contrary to Robert, I believe that this is detrimental to the role in the public sphere. To some surprise, however, I found that we agree on a prognosis for the museum's future. Not least for these reasons, I believe this conversation is worth having. i record this lengthy introduction partly to compensate for the tone of my conversation with Robert. If you've heard my interviews before, you'll know that I like to challenge my guest. As you will shortly hear, I found some common ground with Robert in his decline diagnosis, but I disagree strongly on the tactics of legitimation which museums deploy. I try to edit our nearly two hour conversation into a fair representation of Robert's proposals, which are meticulously researched and forcefully argued. Robert Jaynes is an independent scholar whose work draws on his many years' experience as a museum director. He is the Editor Emeritus of the Museum Management and Curatorship Journal, a visiting scholar at the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, and he is the founder of the Coalition of Museums for Climate Justice. He is the author of multiple acclaimed books on the social role of the museum. As ever, you will find links to the items we discuss in the show notes. Robert, welcome to the show.
0: Hello, I'm delighted to be here, and I really appreciate your interest in this work.
1: Robert, I'd like to start as far away from the book and from its apocalyptic nature as possible, by which I mean that I'd like to ask you about your experience, um, your many decades as a museum director and a museum researcher. So I wanted to ask you for some anecdotes and some examples of the positive role that museums can play in societies that you have been involved in. I think I think this as a set of credentials will be incredibly useful to our thinking about these institutions as we go on.
0: Yeah, that that's a, that's a very sensible, because uh, my experience in the museum, which I guess is over forty seven years now, has been salutary both personally and professionally. Because I began my career as an archaeologist in the Northwest Territories, which is that remote region of Northern Canada, about 1.3 million square miles. Two thirds of the population were indigenous when I was living there for 14 years. They were either uh, Inuit, Dene, or Métis. And I actually lived in the bush for six months with a traditional in a traditional hunting camp, which consisted of about five families, about oh, probably 45 people ranging in age from three months old to 85, who were still living on the land. And so as a novice, uh, archaeologist and not yet a museum director, I I had this intimate experience with this hunting group. And I learned all kinds of things which began to influence my career as I became a museum director. And that was the first job I got was as a museum director. I learned all about leadership, but not leadership based on hierarchy. It was leadership based on trust and respect. I learned about self-organization. I learned about stewardship of the land, I learned about generosity in a severe environment. And as I think back and reflect, those things, those experiences, those values were, I assumed, and they uh, characterized all my management of museums from then on. So that was a very personal experience, which influenced my professional life. But also then many years later, when I became the director of the Glenbow Museum in Southern Alberta, which is one of Canada's ten largest museums. basically, you would call it a regional history Museum. it was truly multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. It was located in Calgary where and in southern Alberta, southern Canada, where contrary to my experience in the North, indigenous peoples were marginalized. you know they were considered to be alcoholics on the east end of town. but I had a completely opposite experience because when I worked in the north i I uh, reported to people who were in charge, and they were Indigenous people. They were the people that wore three-piece suits. (laughs) Well, to make a long story short, we fostered relationships with the Indigenous people in the homeland of the Blackfoot, where the Glenbow Museum was located. And that experience resulted, about 12 years later, in the largest repatriation of Indigenous sacred objects in Canadian history, and it still is. So on the one hand, my experience with the museum has been very personal. On the other hand, I think that I've been able to work in museums where we've actually contributed to community well-being, far beyond the notion of education and entertainment.
1: Hmm. That's an intriguing account of museum life and which places some of today's conversations about deaccessioning and decoloniality in museums in quite some historical perspective But I want to row straight back out of this happy story and ask you what it is that jolted you to become such a doomer. Forgive my levity. I mean, reading Spengler can't be all that much fun. But I am am referring to your first chapter, which assembles quite a number of accounts and theories of uh, society's um, inevitable collapse. So staying with the biographical for a moment longer, what happened? What changed?
0: Well, that's a really good. That's really interesting. You use the word jolt because I did uh, have a real jolt in 1989. In those days, the museum was, I think, about 85 percent public funded. It had very little business raising money, had very little in- earned income, and the go- the head of the government called me up and said, "Well, you know, we've decided that we're going to cut uh, your budget by 45 percent over the next year." Mm-hmm. And because we didn't have much independent income, we ran the numbers, did some really serious conversations, and realized that the institution would be bankrupt and gone were we not to come up with some sort of strategy to combat that huge budget cut. And so that got me asking, so why are we doing all this? Because the first thing I had to do was fire, lay off 25 people. Mm-hmm. Then when I did that, I had I received a death threat. Oh. And it sort of began to unravel, and it caused me to ask the question, why? I mean, what really is the purpose of this organization? All this heartache and trauma and anguish has started now, and to what end? So I really started asking why, what, how, and for whom. And that began a long strategic process, which really probably went for 12 years. And uh, we, we took the institution completely apart. We changed its Mm -hmm. internal organization. We changed its value system. We installed principles to make it a more intelligent organization. So that was the jolt. But that jolt was really, you know, in retrospect, a very welcome thing because uh, it changed my whole attitude towards museums. And I began to realize negatively that most museums that I was aware of were never asking why are we doing what we're doing? They were just set in uh, assumptions, untested assumptions. And past practices, some of which were completely ridiculous, like this notion of you can't be accession, you have to keep everything for everything. We began to challenge all those sacred cows, and I do it to this day. I guess I've just become more and more serious about it.
1: Okay, well, let's let's follow that into the book. Your argument develops essentially, I think, in three sections. One is an argument that we are indeed in trouble, that society is collapsing, in a number of different ways over a number of different metrics from environmental to economics and social. Second is the proposal that museums should do something about this. And finally, you give some examples of museums that are coming up with solutions or they're using the resources to propose solutions. How do you begin to convince your colleagues that this is a relevant and urgent narrative
0: well, the first thing I would do before I get into that is challenge this notion that somehow museums can have their, their own view of reality,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that somehow they can sit on the sidelines and be comfortable with what they do and not pay attention to what's really going on around them. And part of that curse is this notion of neutrality, you know, which, which most senior museum leaders are still claiming that somehow we can't get involved in moral and civic issues that will ultimately impact my organization. Instead, they claim this notion of neutrality. But of course, that's complete nonsense, because most museums are mainstream Western civilization institutions, so they have biases built right into them. Mm-hmm. But I would say that what museum workers have to do is sort of lift up their brains, lift up their eyes. I know they're very busy and they're very stressed, but we've got a really big problem. You know, Now we have the new word polycrisis, wherein multiple interconnected stressors have amplified over time and created this overwhelming complexity. And climate trauma, and it's we we shouldn't even talk about climate change. I mean, that's a ridiculous term. First, it was climate change. Then it was climate warming. Then it was the climate emergency. Then it was the climate crisis. And now I'm inclined to call it the climate trauma. But again, it's only symptomatic of some much more fundamental and deeper problems, including ecological overshoot. We have now arrived as a species at a point where we're consuming more resources than our habitat can provide, and we're producing more waste than our habitat can take care of. We've got civilizational overshoot, this consumptive model, you know, where I fly to London, England for two days just because I want to. We have government incompetence. We have corporate deceit. I mean, just have a look at COP28, 2,400 oil lobbyists. We have eco-modernism, you know, this new perspective which says, well, we can have it all. You know, we can have electric cars, we can have plenty of solar panels and wind turbines, and we don't have to change our life at all. We'll just continue to mine the earth, destroy the ocean, create all this renewable technology, and maintain the comfort level of the global north while the global south continues to unravel. We have refugees, we have authoritarianism. I mean, right now we're using, in terms of our consumption, 1.75 planets. And you couple that then with toxic pollution, the disappearance of wild nature. If you look at all the biomass now, the mammal biomass in the world, only 4% of it is still wild. The other 96% are human beings and domestic livestock. We've got resource depletion. We've got political polarization. We have disruptive wealth inequality. And all these things, you just have to listen to the news every day with refugees, war, water quality, all of these things. So I would say there's a pretty big pattern out there showing that collapse has already been installed. And so how museums can sort of say, well, that hasn't really impacted me yet is really fuzzy thinking. And I wrote this book in many ways because I felt an obligation to serve as a messenger you know, to communicate this poly crisis to my colleagues because I realize that a lot of them are too stressed to be able to think in this larger context. So I, I consider this kind of communication really important because I don't see a lot of museum boards, executives, or managers having the sort of conversation that you and I are having right now. And this conversation has to start if we're going to have any hope of addressing it. And so I start to think, well, you know, why, I mean... Boards of governors, curators, artists, they're intelligent people. So we've got a problem with senior museum leaders. They may have 30 years of experience, but it's the same year repeated 30 times. (laughs) In other words, I don't see a lot of curiosity or a lot of reaching out and new learning in order to begin to cope with what's really going on.
1: I think this answer will give our listeners a good idea of the focus of your deliberation. And indeed, the question of climate does really preoccupy a lot of the book. But staying with the general for a moment longer, every single one of the threats you describe uh, does have the potential to end society as we know it, or destabilize society significantly. So if we're in agreement over that possibility, then the question for me becomes what it is that we can use to legitimate set of responses. So it shouldn't be difficult for us to agree at this stage that any one of the problems that you describe, whether it's inequality or whether it's geopolitics or indeed climate, solicits quite a gamut of responses, political, social and individual and emotional. But what is the platform from which an institution like the museum could build something along the lines of a consensus or a proposal?
0: Well, I think generally and simply the arena is the individual, the family and the community, because uh, governments demonstrate every day their complete disregard and their incompetence about what is really going on and the hard decisions that are going to have to be made in order to cope with with this new reality, I mean, I live in a small, beautiful mountain town in the Canadian Rockies, about five minutes from the Banff Park Gate, and I think Banff is quite famous around the world. Mm-hmm. And all the economic planners, all the politicians, are com- committed to this 20th century model of growth. Right? That they're still thinking that 30 years from now there's going to be egalitarian jet travel, and people are going to be coming here from China and Brazil. I mean the, the signs are already out that that modern techno industrial civilization is on its way out there's not going to be enough oil and gas to do that so to predicate the, the the future of my beautiful town on international tourism is actually immoral in in, in my uh, in my view so if i say individuals families and communities are the focus then i go to the fact that there are 95,000 museums in the world some say there's like 110 but at least 95,000. And they are public storefronts. No other organization has that sort of welcoming feature. Uh, Universities, I mean, most people would never step on a university campus. They're far Mm -hmm. too complicated and alienating. Governments aren't doing anything about it. Corporations certainly aren't. So these 95,000 museums have the potential to begin this conversation, to actually help and assist their citizens, their individuals and families become more aware that our culture is changing, that this old model, the MTI, the techno-industrial, is no longer working, and we need a new narrative. We need a new narrative that goes beyond economic growth. And I'm firmly convinced that museums have the knowledge and the capability to begin that conversation at the most local level. And that's where all of this suffering, where all of this success all of this grieving, all of this joy is going to play out, is in your neighborhood, in your town, in your city. And museums are instrumental, you know, as a, as a mechanism of the commons to begin this conversation and not only begin the conversation, but to assist with it. I mean, just look at a collection as a seed bank, right? Museum collections are evidence of sustainable living practices that we've had for thousands of years. And we may have to go back to that as this industrial technology becomes more and more brittle. But nobody has really begun to explore the potential of museums within this threatening context that we now live in. And I'm hoping that this book will sort of at least send a message and get some people thinking that there are possibilities. There's causes for, I don't know if I want to use the word hope, but we certainly aren't helpless and museums can really assist with that.
1: I want to stick with the notion of the public arena for a moment longer, So I'm struck by your deployment of this concept of the individual, family, and community. It's kind of a very conservative approach to where agency and power lies, and the relationship of that formation and a broader democratic principle. We would probably agree that Western societies have been running a bit of a democratic deficit of late. The turn to populism, for example, is a symptom of that. But there was also a tension inherent in trying to move from one scale to another. In the case of climate, for example, the idea that we might be able to affect some kind of change entirely within the kind of local community sphere doesn't exactly marry up with the necessity also put forward by the same narrative of making global changes. And conversely, the individual, the family, and the community don't necessarily have the legitimacy to demand change at a kind of global scale. So, where do you think the museum situates itself in all of this, and which scale of politics does it serve?
0: Well, if I may, Pierre, I'll ask you the question: Why does uh, why does not democratic democratic legitimacy reside? in the community, on the most local level, because maintaining democracy is all about individual responsibility and individual commitment, and that all unfolds on the community level in terms of really getting things done. It doesn't necessarily reside exclusively in Parliament or in Congress. Mm -hmm. I mean, democracy hits the road with individuals, families, and communities, and I see museums as a catalyst in fostering that. I mean most museums are grounded in their communities at least smaller ones are and their expressions of locality. Um museums they bear witness they assemble they assemble evidence and knowledge and they make things known. They're skilled at making learning accessible. They they serve often as a bridge between nature and culture. They make learning fun and accessible. And again, they're public storefronts. People are comfortable going in there. So I see museums as a sort of not only a catalyst, but actually a host to enact these democratic principles so that the community can begin to adapt and protect itself from this poly crisis that's unfolding. I just don't think that we have to defer to some superior power to take care of us. We have to assume responsibility because it's clear that over the last—well, actually, climate change has been known about for over 100 years, first discovered by a Swedish scientist. The governments have done nothing. They're still enamored of the growth model, and the growth model is unequivocally killing the planet. To defer to a higher sort of democratic power hasn't gotten us anywhere. So I say that this reality has to begin to unfold on the most local level.
1: Well, the way you phrase it sounds almost revolutionary, which is kind of a quaint thing to propose when we're talking about museums, probably the most conservative institutions that we could set about inventing. And I think that prompts a question of the history of the institution. At which point is it that the museum has failed to grasp this opportunity? So whatever timeline we take in understanding the museum's roles as the promoter of the democratic principle, what happens that stops museums from serving that function to the point that you believe they have been asleep at the wheel?
0: Well, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question because I, what would be the answer? I mean, are they sort of inherently conservative organizations? It makes me think of Neil Postman, the cultural critic,
1: Hmm.
0: Who said that museums are mirrors of society, and, as far as he was concerned, they should also be an argument with society. They should also deal with things that are difficult and unpleasant. But when you look at museums i mean there there's some there's some hope there because if you look at their evolution, like you referred to, you know, they started out as these imperial collection closets that were very exclusive hmm. and plundered the world and then we had the public museum you know, which was to edify and educate the common person. And that lasted for a long time. And now we have the museum as mall, right? They're basically have become appendages Mm -hmm. of consumer society. They're more interested in what they're serving in their dining room and the junk that they sell in their shops than they are with values and purpose. And so now we're kind of dead ended at the museum as mall, which is the growth model. So we're at a watershed it's time for change, we need a new narrative. And what better institution than a contemporary art gallery or a museum to start cobbling together that new narrative in conjunction with those people who are interested in the museum and who support it. So I think there's potential for the museum to change its trajectory because it has done it at least three times. It's just now that it's really urgent. And for some reason, as I guess, because museums are a mirror of society, this growth model has sort of swindled everybody in the museum world, and everything is neoliberal, and it's all money-based, and it's where business literacy and business methodology has actually replaced values and the core purpose of museums. And I think you and I would agree on that, because we're, we, we're still suffering from it.
1: Yes, I think the neoliberal collapse of these institutions is is at the root of a lot of its thrashing about now. I agree. I think where we would disagree is to whether the proposals that you extend are not in fact attempts to overcorrect and to cover up for a great amount of moral uncertainty and, and complete lack of understanding of the legitimacy. And the source of the authority. So maybe we could go back to the question of museum neutrality that that you invoked earlier. And I think that concept is useful because it could mean two different things. Normally, in literature, it refers to the idea that the museum is not just this kind of pristine representation of its society. I mean, it's a mirror, but it's a distorted mirror because, of course, it's driven by the values and the practices of whoever over its history has contributed to making it what it is. So a museum is, of course, biased. But the other question of museum neutrality is to do with, particularly in today's society, which we believe is more polarized than ever before, that's to do with the museum's openness to contrasting ideas and conflicting ideas. I'm going to cite something which I I had noted from the book. Museums have a more enduring role to play in society by clearly demonstrating that no one group or ideology possesses the sword of truth about how society should conduct itself. So, you want to, I think, quite commendably, you want to undermine that kind of sim- symbol track thought of museums. I think the question then becomes who it is that actually needs to be deposed, because both critiques can be valued at the same time that it's both the business as usual, the Louvre opening yet another branch and yet another oil state, but the other is the overcorrection of the activist museum that has the right answers on climate, on Palestine and Gaza, on trans rights, migration, Brexit, Trump. The list is endless. How do we navigate the fact that society is indeed fractured? Not merely on climate, but actually in pretty much everything that has mattered. the, The voting booth shows us We do not agree yet. Museums, those that have woken up, those that have followed your call, actually have been in quite a lot of trouble by really siding with a very, very streamlined and aligned set of conclusions, and not really allowing any of that kind of public discourse that we were wanting to encourage.
0: I've always been interested in this notion of neutrality, and it really started to bother me when you know climate crisis began to rear its head. Uh, because museum directors would tell me cuz I started writing 20 years ago about climate mm-hmm. and they would tell me that well it's really a scientific issue it's a, a science museum should be dealing with it it's a it's a political issue but you know as more and more evidence accumulated it's clear that the whole thing i mean it, it reflected so many different issues it was moral political social cultural etc and to claim that somehow the climate trauma Was neutral ground was really ridiculous because museums are knowledge-based organizations and there's a 98% scientific consensus for at least 15 years now that climate crisis is human induced. And so for a museum director to claim they're not going to do anything about climate change because they want to maintain their neutrality uh, was just unacceptable to me. Because it's not a political issue, it's a scientific issue, and they have a responsibility. So to answer your question, I think this whole thing has to begin with individual institutions. There isn't some proscription. And a museum, an art gallery has to sit down with their directors, their staff, their management, their key stakeholders, maybe even their community, ideally, and begin the conversation about why are we doing what we're doing, for whom what and then let the how come and i think that i mean in my experience when i've introduced these kind of broad conversations and open conversations it inevitably leads to discussions about values and purpose mm-hmm. meaning and now for some museums it's leading to an advocacy policy where in in, in sympathy of what you're saying you know they can't do everything An advocacy policy allows them to sit down and decide what civic and moral issues are important to that museum, where can they add value, where can they assist, and then identify those, and then get on with that work, and not pretend to be everything to everyone, but decide which issues are most critical. And I think it's perfectly feasible to do that, and I've seen some museums do that.
1: Well, I'm glad we agree that uh, turning museums around does involve some trade-offs and decisions. And as much as one could make a joke of, say, the Museum of Coal Mining rewriting its mission to become a museum of climate activism, we could also consider the trade offs involved in repurposing all sorts of other organizations towards the goal you have just outlined. Mm -hmm. So, from my perspective as someone involved in contemporary art, the wholesale turn of contemporary art museums, as we just saw. Uh, in the Museum COP that Tate hosted in October, that does result in removing the focus from all the other things that art is not only useful, but actually humanly necessary for. And another byproduct, which is also illustrated in this COP that I just referred to is the fact that none of the conversations with communities on a local level are necessarily rehappening. Really happening the fact that a whole bunch of museum associations come together and are able to, after a couple of days of talking, saying we will from now on make it our priority to make climate change programming for our audiences is kind of a betrayal of the principles, I think, that you were espousing.
0: Well, I, I I think it's hard to generalize, and a lot of what we're saying this morning is generalization. But I mean, I I, you know museums are knowledge based organizations they have a long they have a long tradition and i i'm still perhaps naive but i think that uh, for the most part the governing authorities are sincere and i don't see why they can't sit down and have the same conversation among themselves and decide what are we going to do are we going to uh, join this or not join that or accept this or not accept that i just see them as a as this really powerful Institution that's not paying attention. And of course, as they begin to pay attention, they're going to make mistakes. But why do museums just have to be seen as sources of leisure entertainment? I mean, culture is not about leisure entertainment. I mean, culture is about how we lead our lives and museums have a role and responsibility and they're going to have to start working that out themselves or I fear they're going to become completely irrelevant, even though a lot of them already are. And there are museums out there that are having these conversations and they're writing strong mission statements about committing to climate change and other issues. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I see that at least there may be mistakes. It's not gonna be perfect, but it's better than this passivity that characterizes so many museums uh, in the world today. That may be aspirational, it may be naive, but I think we need to plant this message and get people to start talking and see what road they want to take. And because you see now that there's so many non-mainstream museum organizations that are welling up. I think I I mentioned up to 20 in my book. And mm-hmm. these these really organizations, they're not just, they're not lobby groups. They're they're they've arisen because they're really unhappy with the way the museum world is being managed. You know, you've got the empathetic museum, you have museums as progress, you have um, museum expert, you have museum human. And a lot of these people are museum workers, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them aren't. And they're looking at museums and saying, we could really be doing a whole lot better if we started paying attention to these things. And again, that leads us in again to the nature of current museum leadership, which is so hierarchical. And throughout my entire career, I've always found that museum directors, art museum directors, have far too much authority, far too much responsibility. I mean, the world is so complex now that leadership is really about the group. It's not about this single CEO.
1: Okay, I think we're going to loop back to points of agreement, because towards the end of the book, you apply these critiques that you have just expressed. And among the solutions, you really consider that in this re-evaluation of the museum's purpose, there should indeed naturally be quite a lot of losers. So to my surprise, I'm completely with you on quite a lot of this. There are museums that are, for a variety of reasons, some of them because they're just not agile enough to really understand what it is they're looking after or respond to any kind of present, as you were just saying. Or on the other hand, I also, I personally find that the bigger the organization, the more likely it is actually to have been wholesale captured to the point that it kind of serves an agenda that, for my taste, goes too far. Mm-hmm. But whichever, whatever reason it is, I think you and I seem to believe that kind of smaller would be would be beautiful. And for you, maybe there's degrowth. For me, it's just kind of despair at the you know, mega institutions trying to organize themselves and figure out one way to approach the planet's planet's questions. So what what are your proposals? What what would be worth preserving? What would be worth letting go of?
0: Yeah, I believe that the small museum is really the key to the future. Maybe the small to the medium, because as we talked about earlier, they're much more nimble. They're more transparent in their communication. They're close to their communities. I mean, these really large museums, you know, we've always said it's like turning a ship around in a bathtub. They're just... uh, they're just like big government departments in many ways. They're hierarchical, they're process-driven, they're bureaucratic, they're unresponsive, uh, despite what they might say in their websites. So I, I don't see a great deal of future in the large museum, more so in the small museum. But I think some of the things that have to be done, some of the things that we have to let go of again is this growth myth. We just can't keep spending and consuming and building more museums and using more concrete and flying to conferences—I mean, it's irresponsible. So the growth myth has to end. I think the edifice complex has to end. Uh, but still, you know, there's there's vanity and conceit. Architecture buildings being built every month, and they're always over budget. And every time they go over budget, they fire off the staff and they reduce the programs to pay for the architectural mistakes. I think collecting has to be done in a much more sort of thoughtful manner. And if you can't take care of the objects that you have now, it probably makes pretty good sense to stop collecting. And I've been in multidisciplinary institutions. I was a director of one that had an archives, a a vast archives, actually. Mm -hmm. And they were so sensible, the archivists, because they were in constant communication with their archival colleagues across Canada. And they would um, find out that we had a certain collection that really wasn't germane to our mandate. And they would give that to the place geographically where it was and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So they were always sharing collections, highly intelligent. Museums never do that. Um, I think another thing that uh, museums have to ponder and and eliminate is this scarcity complex, which is characterized all the time I've been close to museums, there's never enough money, there's never enough staff, there's never enough technology, the buildings are too small, the collections are too small. I think that the scarcity complex has to be dropped. <laughs> and I think another thing is start replacing this neoliberal marketplace ideology that you and I have discussed with values, You know things like wisdom and humility and courage and social responsibility. Uh, Business literacy is really important. I mean, every museum worker should know what his or her budget is. They should know how to read a balance sheet. They should know all that financial stuff. But again, that's a methodology. It's not a value system. Mm -hmm. And you and I, I think, both agree that the values have been replaced by neoliberal ideology, and it's really been hurtful to museums. And I think, back to what we were talking about earlier, another thing that we could dispense with is this notion of neutrality. But again, it has to be done thoughtfully. There's no sort of blanket prescription here. But I think if the conversation starts, why, the question why is asked, that it's going to lead to advocacy policy, or at least it's going to lead to a finer understanding of the position of the museum within its community.
1: I want us to talk about the diversity of museums for a moment. And maybe a way to do this is to take the international view and I guess this would be a fair question, even though um, our conversation has so far been confined to the Western world. The question would be fair because the question of climate, which you take on so frontally, does inevitably involve some kind of an international tussle about who should do what next and at what cost and to whose benefit precisely. So I wonder whether this highlights the fact that different museums and their communities might end up having completely different sets of principles and sets of interests, whether this negotiation between the museum and its community does take place or not. And I think that leaves the question of what the museum is for, really dependent on whose the museum is and where it is. So what does a museum in China owe to its community? What does it owe to the state? What does it owe to the more likely than not still private funder? What does a museum in Indonesia that is being lined up for exploitation of its natural resources by the West and China? What does its museum have to say about that?
0: Well, I wish I had more, uh, you know, on-the-ground international experience. But you know, you alluded to China. I understand that the the Chinese government—I don't know if the policy is still in effect, but it's very recent. They wanted a museum in every town of a hundred thousand people or more. And clearly, you know they're a propaganda tool for maintaining the integrity of the of the state's ideology. And i have in been in contact with a Taiwanese colleague who's concerned with government interference in his exhibition program as a way of promoting the government. And this has not happened before, so he's wondering what they should be doing about that. Um, I assisted with the removal of the staff of the Memory Museum in Kabul when the Taliban took over, that the Memory Museum consisted of memory boxes of people who had been killed, tortured, or otherwise abused by the Taliban, along with archival documents, which would become very important in terms of human rights investigations about the Taliban's crimes. The Taliban came to the museum and said, we're going to destroy the museum and kill all of you. We got the we got the whole museum staff out. took two year took about a year and a half. They had to escape to Pakistan and hide out till they could get to Canada. They're here now. Uh, so you know, just just think of their museum agenda compared to mine. You know, or yours. the, the sort of forces of evil that they're confronting. Uh, that's I guess just sort of a capsule, a capsule look at some of my. Uh, recent international museum experience. But, you know, I think about ICOM, and I don't know if you're familiar with ICOM, but it's the International Council Mm -hmm. of Museums. I think it has 40,000 members. It's huge. I mean, it's the biggest professional organization for museums in the world. But you bring up an interesting point because over the last two years, they thought that they needed a new definition of museums. And they had this really torturous process. I mean, it was comprehensive and really good. But basically, it boiled down to people like me uh, versus the more traditional people who want, you know, collecting, preserving, and interpreting as the mandate. And me and others who thought that it needed to be more sort of contemporary and addressing what's really going on in the world. And uh, the conservatives won. And I think the conservatives won because of what you said earlier. There are all these other museums that are fairly new in the rest of the world, and and the ICOM is very international in in composition. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 otherworldly perspective, I mean that international, that global perspective, dictated that more conservative definition of museums. And that's a conundrum now, because this new definition of museums, which you know, most museums probably will adopt, has sustainability, the word in there once, with no context and no meaning. It's just a throwaway word that means nothing. So that's definitely a problem. So I think that the museum that's conscientious about the future is going to have to ignore that renewed definition of the museum in the the interest of becoming more progressive and contributing more to the well-being of their
1: communities. I think that's perversely quite useful to achieving my goal, even though I, I completely understand your frustration with with this. <laughs> I did follow it as an ICO member myself at the and My view was actually that some of the proposals, which included turning the museum into an institution of care for the community, which is one of these agendas in the museum world. Let's make museums a replacement for failing healthcare systems.
0: You're exaggerating a bit, there, Beer. <laughs> for comic
1: effect, but also for a kind of a chilling effect. I think it would have been terrifying to extend the obligations of these institutions into areas of competence in which they have no experience and absolutely no resources. And you have said a couple of times in our conversations that museums are institutions of scientific learning and knowledge. Well, There are disciplines, there are limits to the competence of museums. They are, as you were saying, we can't be all things to all people. And quite often that kind of hubris, I think, starts already within the institutions.
0: I don't think there needs to be sort of a preconceived notion of limitations. I mean, why can't museums, you know, scan the environment, scan their resources and decide what it would be appropriate for them to do? And if they might need assistance, they could reach out for it. I mean, that's another problem museums. They're so insular, and everything has to be perfect. Well, they could be a bit more vulnerable and admit that they don't really know about this and seek assistance in the form of sort of multidisciplinary collaboration. But that's not on the agenda for most museums. They're the authority. They have the answer. They'll take care of things. Hmm. And the other point I want to make is that uh, this discussion we had may may have been you know, adequate 15 years ago. But as we pointed out, as I pointed out in the poly crisis, the rules underpinning our existence have completely changed now. We have never been in this position before as a civilization. We have in terms of wars and things like that, but not in terms of what we've done to the environment, what we've done to the oceans, what we're doing to all these complex ecosystems. This is a whole new agenda. And I think we need a whole new set of references to start to guide our work. In other words, the past is no longer the guide to the future.
1: <laughs> well, I'll take responsibility for a couple of days of this 15 years, but not necessarily for all of them. <laughs> but I've quizzed you about the democratic principle, and I've quizzed you about the technical just now. So I wonder whether you indulge me in thinking about the moral So there are plenty of questions that museums take on as a matter of activism and I've already intimated that I think they are quite easily swayed by activist groups. Questions like Brexit, questions like the support of the disdain for Donald Trump and these are just selected examples but there are plenty of instances of museum workers in the UK coming under quite severe strain including losing the jobs, simply for um, exercising the democratic right to vote in an election in a particular way. So censorship is now a kind of design feature of the museum. And I appreciate that I'm taking this this quite far, this this boat. So the thrill remark, I'll offer the question of um, Israel and Palestine, which has recently seen museums completely lose their other And I would possibly say for for the right reasons and for the best. But my question then to you is, how do we navigate the need for urgent action that museums are quite happy to participate in under circumstances which are highly contested on, on moral grounds?
0: I don't know the scale of this that's bothering you so much. I mean, I would consider that this moral rectitude problem is sort of a minority dimension compared to the good that's really being done. And I don't know whether you looked at the book that I did with Richard Sandell on museum activism, but a lot of that stuff is just about making communities better and helping communities get better. And helping with the well-being of communities. It's not about moral rectitude, it's assisting where assistance is required with memory museums and all sorts of things.
1: Yeah. So so let's let's take an example there. The thing that does come for the book, you nail your colors to the masses, someone who's in favor of degrowth. Should should you be running a museum that is proposing to its community that degrowth is the option? How do you accommodate? disagreement? How do you accommodate the fact that, as we happen to know, at the voting booth, no community is agreeing with any of this? How does a museum then foster a conversation on contentious proposal, a solution to a problem that I think there is agreement on? Because this is what happens in all conversations. Yes, in fact, even in ours, the disagreement about the problem and disagreement to its solutions, they get kind of mixed up one and the other. So how Mm -hmm. do you how would you argue as a museum director? How would you include people and then maybe learn from the rejection of your proposals? How, you know, how, how does a museum do something of that scale?
0: I'm involved in that experiment right now, as a matter of fact. I mean, I'm not a museum director because I left organizational life, but I've been thinking about that with respect to our community here. Um, nobody's paying attention to what's going on. They... Um, Uh, they're interested in expanding tourism. So I'm involved with an organization and I donated uh, some money to them. And we've had two public lectures now, one in person, uh, and one, um, on zoom by Richard Heinberg, the cultural critic from the United States and another one from Canada. And they've sort of presented one in stark terms, one in more polite terms what's going on in the world around us and the implications of the polycrisis crisis for our community. And then we've just run a survey to collect all the data from there were about 180 people that attended these talks. And we've got the survey data now, and it appears there's enough interest in our community that we're going to organize a bunch of workshops, face-to-face workshops with the concerns and issues that the attendees presented in the survey and start a series of community conversations to see where will this lead. And as you pointed out, we may find out that people don't care. You know, just give this up, Bob. We don't need to know. We don't need to have this conversation. Everything's fine. But I'm sensing in our community that there are a lot of people out there that want more answers. They want more assurances. They want more direction on what they can do to begin to prepare. And I see the museum as a catalyst in doing that, but the museum we have in our town is asleep at the wheel. So I I did it without Mm them.
1: (laughs) Wouldn't you know it? The museum isn't always right. Um, But at the risk of ending our conversation on a high note, I wanted to ask you for some examples of institutions and museum practices that are doing what you believe they should be doing quite well.
0: Um, I think the Australian Museum is a is a poster child for um challenging climate change, you know, and its consequences. Uh, particularly a curator there, Jennifer Newell. It's a national museum, so it's multidisciplinary with collections in a lot of there's diverse areas, really strong indigenous collections and a scientific component to it. And uh, you just have to look at their mission statement about it, which states their responsibility and our responsibility as citizens to confront the climate crisis in, in, in a number of different ways. And they, prevent, they present programs and resources and publications about this. They've made a serious commitment to it. So as the Minnesota Science Museum, the Phipps Conservatory, P-H-I-P-P-S, Phipps Conservatory is another sort of poster child for this kind of consciousness—it's the conservatory, but in, rather than conserving our objects, they conserve plants, mm-hmm. and that's the—that's uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then there are just a lot of good mid-sized museums, you know, around the country that are in, that are trying to cut down on their um, their energy consumption. They're starting community conversations. But most of them, you know, have selected certain areas to work in, like climate change. They're not dealing with all these civic and moral issues. But there's the Homelessness Museum in your country. Uh, oh, and, and and another really good one that's really coming into the fore uh, is um, the Horniman, directed by Nick Merriman, I think whose wife is the head of the Tate, right?
1: Indeed. Indeed. And let's um, let's not use this as proof of my theory that all these things are orchestrated by activist groups <laughs> well either way Robert thank you so much for your time and for the conversation well thank you very
0: much Pierre it's been a real pleasure
1: Museums and Societal Collapse the Museum is Lifeboat by Robert R. James is published by Routledge I'm Pierre D'Alancin and the editor is Marshall Poe thanks for listening and join us next time